Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is the Maritime Ireland radio show about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. The sea around our coastline, our inland waters, our lakes and rivers are all part of Ireland's marine sphere and vitally important socially and economically to this island nation. Ireland's connection with the sea is as old as time itself. Maritime Ireland brings together the maritime community to which everyone is welcome to join. And it's broadcast on 18 radio stations around Ireland and on podcast. I noticed that a new description of the weather has come into use, describing what we've been experiencing over the past few weeks as unseasonal, which seems particularly apt. The weather is always a dominant public topic and of considerable importance to this island nation. The seas around Ireland tell us a lot about the weather we experience. The Irish Marine Data Boy Observation Network provides the wide resource of information needed for weather forecasting. This is the 20th year in which the network has been deploying weather boys in the waters around Ireland, where one of them recorded an amazing wave height. It recorded a wave height of 23 and a half metres approximately, which has been the highest recorded individual wave in Irish waters at that time. If you consider that it's, it's probably at least six times the height of a double-decker bus, well, that's not insignificant. It's certainly not. That's Mick Gillooly, Joint Acting Chief Executive of the Marine Institute and Director of Ocean Climate and Information Services, who will be telling us all about that network, one aspect of which amazes me. The M6 buoy in the Rockall Trough, which has a mooring line that stretches down an amazing 3,500 kilometres, that's over 2,120 miles to the seabed. And we'll hear what Dublin Port is doing for the world's longest distant migrant, a great seabird. There have been terns nesting in Dublin Port since at least 1949, and since 1994 they've used isolated pontoons for this purpose. This year, thanks to Dublin Port Company, an upgraded tern nesting pontoon has been deployed at the Great South Wall. It seems natural enough that migrant seabirds would choose to nest on an isolated island or on a pristine shingle beach, but on the face of it, bustling Dublin Port would seem to be an unlikely location for them to breed. Yet, tucked within this industrial landscape, beneath towering cranes and in the wake of passing cargo ships, hundreds of fledgling common and arctic terns take to the wing each summer. Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland will tell us how the country's biggest port is looking after its special visitors. It's said to be the biggest topic of conversation around Ireland, the weather. We Irish talk about it incessantly. Every hour of every day throughout the year, there are dedicated people using the most modern technology in the waters around Ireland to acquire and provide the information for weather forecasting. At this moment, as you listen to this programme, they're monitoring weather boys in the waters around our coast, which form the essential Irish Marine Data Boy Observation Network. 
There was a time when weather forecasting was considered to be somewhat hit or miss. These days, it's very accurate. As Mick Lully, Joint Acting Chief Executive of the Marine Institute and Director of Ocean Climate and Information Services, told me. Uh, certainly is. Um, our colleagues in Metairn are applying the most advanced uh, meteorological uh, modelling techniques and technologies delivering the uh, forecasts. And it has to be said that the uh, extent of uh, data coming in from the marine area, uh, the weather coming in to Ireland, of course, travels over the Atlantic. Uh, having the weather boys out there to, to monitor and send in the data does help to uh, fine-tune, if you like, the models and the forecasts developed uh, by Majern and colleagues uh, throughout Europe. Indeed, the Irish Marine Data Boy Observation Network, as it's called, has been providing, it's not alone weather forecasting, which is extremely important, of course, but it's also safety at sea is an important part of that whole network, is it not? Uh, That's right. It's um, some of the uh, boys around the coast are instrumented to measure uh, wave activity, wave height, uh, wave duration, um, and other um, uh, oceanographic parameters, uh, which enables uh, modelling uh, of things such as sea level, um, tidal incursions, and, and other uh, current activities around the, the uh, coast. So the, the boys, all five of them, and particularly the M6 boy, which is located some 500 kilometres to the west of Ireland, provides a lot of uh, data which enables uh, oceanographic modelling, which is looking at water flows, water uh, movements, and um, to be much more high resolution and, and accurate as a result. It's an amazing thing for me to think that those boys are so far out because, as you say, so so far off the coast, that you can keep them active and keep in touch with them with all the weather that hits them as well. Yeah, we, we, we certainly have uh, a challenging uh, job to keep, particularly the M6 boy, but all of the weather boys uh, active at all times. Um, M6, uh, as I said, is out there some 500 kilometres to the west of Ireland and uh, has encountered waves uh, of up to 20 plus metres on a regular basis. Uh, it's in three and a half thousand metres of water, and it's it's roughly two days steam, a day and a half steam, to get out there from from the west of of Ireland. So we we do plan. Um, all the boys are equipped with uh, double redundancy, so they have a duplication of sensors on board. They use a satellite system to transmit the data in real time back ashore, and then we have a, a maintenance program. Um, which ensures, insofar as we can, uh, that we get out there to service the boys, change sensors, maintain them, etc. But despite the best efforts, if a severe storm uh, comes in or another event, occasionally there's uh, accidental collisions where boats bump into the boys, um, that can create some some damage and we have to try and and get a vessel out then to to, uh, repair the damage. The moorings alone, the depth down, it's, it's fascinating how you get that. Now, I, I know that you also are helped by the, as well as the Celtic Explorer and the Celtic Voyager in the boys. You've helped from 
vessels like the Irish Lights vessel, Brand New Whale. So there's a big operation goes on all the time to maintain that network unseen by the public. Uh, that's very true. Um, there's a, a year-round program of, of activity um, because while the boy uh, is out there, we're maintaining the sensors and preparing sensors to go back out on that boy when a vessel visits. So we have to change out the sensors. We can't just always repair the, the sensors in a short space of time. So there's a constant program involving primarily the Celtic Explorer and Celtic Voyager, but as you, you said, uh, vessels such as the Grand Whale and indeed other vessels um, operating in the area um, who are targeted to go out at specific points of the year to um, maintain uh, the instrumentation. The M6 boy is, is located as you said, uh, over 500 kilometres to the west of Ireland and in a depth of 3,500 metres. So we need a relatively large vessel um, for marine safety reasons to get out um, to do the servicing of that buoy. So most of that work is done by either the Celtic Explorer or on occasion the Grainne Whale. Listening to all of that, the work that goes on with your crews out there, the mariners who have to do that work, it's it must be very, very difficult, very challenging. It is certainly on the the deep water boy. Um, the the um, amount of of uh, line, uh, rope, um, chain, and uh, various other um, sensors have to be be deployed. It's for, for instance on. On that M6 buoy, the top 1,000 meters of the of the line of the mooring line for the buoy has various instruments attached to it. So you can imagine having three and a half kilometers of cable and and chain on your deck with a very large weight um, and various other connections. And as as it's deployed, the sensors are connected on on the top 1,000. So it's, it's a, a very technical operation and the deck crew and, and the ship's crew are central to making sure that that's done safely and they're supported in doing that with instrument techs, uh, people that are, are expert in the particular instruments that are going on. But it, it is a prolonged, takes quite a few hours to get the boy safely deployed uh, at, at its location particularly, uh, as I say, in the M6. And it can be in difficult weather too at times, obviously. Absolutely. If uh, if the weather window isn't right, we, we, we have to call it off and, and then reschedule to do at a, the next uh, appropriate uh, stage. The uh, Celtic Explorer is, is um, excellent in, in heavy seas, but um, it's, it's very good sea keeping. But the trickiness of deploying the lines over the aft end, you have to make sure that it's relatively steady weather uh, and, and uh, we can never be sure of that uh, to the west of Ireland. Indeed, it, it just points up the, the work that has to be done by the seafarers. Now, back in seven years ago, I think it was, another one of the boys, the M4, recorded the, the, the largest wave and a huge height off the northwest. That's right. During one of the storms in in 2014, it recorded a wave height of 23 and a half meters, approximately, which had been the highest recorded individual wave 
uh, in Irish waters at that time. Regularly, we have uh, wave heights in excess of 15 plus meters and then an occasional wave of that height. That's a very significant height if you consider that it's, it's probably at least six times the height of a double-decker bus. So that's, that's not insignificant. No, and for those who you know not into metres, you're talking there, you know, 45, 70 feet, that's massive waves off the Irish coast. So the, the network, its survival for 20 years, its development is essential to weather forecasting and safety at sea. Absolutely. Weather data that it's providing is, is very important for uh, general weather forecasting, but particularly for uh, mariners and indeed many mariners operating in the in the wider uh, Irish EEZ and, and in coastal waters are tuned in and can connect and download data from individual boys or from the collective boys in real time. So many of our, our mariners, as we know, are, are excellent, uh, almost meteorologists themselves and their uh, utilisation of that data. The data is also used, meteorological data is used, as well as the oceanographic data. That's data on, on the water body itself is used in uh, areas such as climate modelling, climate prediction, sea level uh, rise, storm surge uh, activities, coastal flooding, etc. Um, so we do quite a bit of work in that area with our colleagues in Metairn and in other research organisations. A fascinating picture, Mick, of something that would be, as I said, not seen or probably generally recognised by the public. And great to see Irish mariners, Irish marine researchers, Irish scientists to the fore and all of that. Absolutely. Um, and it's a network which, as you say, has been in operation for 20 years, is entirely dependent on the ability of our maritime community, our mariners, to get the equipment out there and uh, cooperation also with our European colleagues. Um, the N6 boy, that deep water boy I mentioned, is one of four um, sentinel boys, as they're described, which are the, the kind of furthest out um, sentinels keeping an eye on the weather for Europe coming in from the West. A significant contribution to European uh, weather forecasting also. And, and weather forecasting, as we all know, it's not unique to one country. Weather in one place affects weather elsewhere. So it's very much a, a European collaboration. Mikaluli, Joint Acting Chief Executive of the Marine Institute, whose headquarters are at Rinville on the edge of lovely Galway Bay. What a wealth of experience and knowledge has been gained for weather forecasting and safety at sea through the Irish Marine Data Boy Observation Network. We had a very big reaction to our recent piece about Radio Caroline, the development of pirate radio aboard ships. Owen McGarry, the seafarer himself, emails to say he was for several years with the Caroline organisation, 
and described how he and others devised ideas for the type of ships that could be used. And he mentioned other DJs on the station, which he suggests we might also have interviewed. It's always good to hear from listeners who also suggest topics for discussion, which at present include river housing and cyber security, a major topic these days since the attack on the HSE and the situation for the maritime sector in relation to such cyber security. Email your comments to Maritime Ireland Radio Show at gmail.com. Dublin Port is the biggest port in the country. It's also the busiest, and amidst all the shipping and port traffic, it has taken special interest in a seabird that is the longest distance migrant in the world. Niall Hatch joins me from Birdwatch Ireland with this lovely story, but he also has a warning which should be noted. Anyone interested in wildlife, please take note. Stress levels in seabirds are being caused by members of the public and particularly photographers, disturbing them while they are nesting. For which purpose? They have come here. This is the busiest time of year for Birdwatch Ireland's seabird conservation teams, with the breeding season now in full swing at colonies right around the Irish coast. The first eggs have been laid at the turn colonies on Rockabill Island, County Dublin, and Kilcool Beach, County Wicklow, and, thanks to the support of the National Parks and Wildlife Service, our wardens are in place to give them 24-hour protection and to monitor their progress. It seems natural enough that migrant seabirds would choose to nest on an isolated island or on a pristine shingle beach, but on the face of it, bustling Dublin port would seem to be an unlikely location for them to breed. Yet, tucked within this industrial landscape, beneath towering cranes and in the wake of passing cargo ships, hundreds of fledgling common and arctic terns take to the wing each summer. There have been terns nesting in Dublin port since at least 1949, and since 1994 they have used isolated pontoons for this purpose. This year, thanks to Dublin Port Company, an upgraded tern nesting pontoon has been deployed at the Great South Wall. The pontoon has been subdivided into compartments with wooden chick shelters in the corners, which help to keep the tern chicks safe in poor weather. The adult terns are laying their eggs there at the moment, as well as on three other pontoons around the port. Despite their apparent ease nesting in such a busy location, it is still an extremely delicate balance between nature and human activity. Approximately 600 pairs of terns have nested each summer in Dublin Port in recent years, and we are hoping that 2021 will be another bumper year for these beautiful seabirds. It's amazing to think that, in just a few months' time, the chicks that are currently still developing inside their eggs will travel so far. The common terns will spend the winter off the coast of West Africa, while the Arctic terns will go even further, to Antarctica, making them the longest distance migrant in the world. This is also the time of year when other seabirds, such as gannets, fulmers, kittiwakes, razorbills, guillemots and the ever-popular puffins, are nesting. In recent years, Birdwatch Ireland has grown increasingly concerned about the impacts that visitors, and especially some photographers, who visit their breeding islands have been having on these very sensitive birds. The nesting birds on Great Salty Island in County Wexford and on Ireland's Eye in County Dublin have been under particularly intense pressure from photographers and day-trippers in recent summers. These islands are easily accessible and provide a fantastic opportunity to see large numbers of amazing seabirds coming and going during the breeding season. Indeed, those of us lucky enough to have done so can probably still remember the first time we saw Puffin, or the sights and smells as we approached a large gannet colony. Allowing visitors to access these islands is undoubtedly a good thing, as it engages more people with seabirds, nature and conservation. It makes them care about wildlife, and we need more of that. Unfortunately, most people don't realise when they are causing disturbance at these colonies, and what can look like a fantastic photo of a gannet, puffin, shag or guillemot might actually be depicting a bird that is very stressed and in fear for its eggs or chicks. 
Research has been conducted on seabirds which shows that they have elevated heart rates and stress levels for hours after a human has approached their nest, even though they didn't fly off and, on the surface, might appear to have been happy to tolerate the human. So, just because a bird remains placidly on its nest when a person approaches, doesn't mean that it's happy about the situation. Really what it's thinking is that it has put months of work into getting to this stage of nesting, and it doesn't want to give that up unless it absolutely has to. Remember, as far as the bird knows, you're a predator. Birdwatch Ireland would like to remind everyone that, under the Wildlife Acts 1976-2018, to it is against the law to disturb nesting birds or to take photos of them, their eggs or their chicks, without a licence from the National Parks and Wildlife Service. So, this summer, we hope you will take the opportunity to enjoy watching some of Ireland's magnificent seabirds, but from a safe, respectful distance, please. Seabirds need your help. If you'd like to help protect Ireland's seabirds and support conservation efforts to restore their populations, please become a member of Birdwatch Ireland. Ireland's largest and most active conservation charity. For full details, please visit www.birdwatchireland.ie. Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland. So don't disturb nesting seabirds. Doing so will cause them harm. They are wonderful to see. I remember the great sight of sailing past the Blasket Islands on the Kerry coastline and seeing and hearing from an appropriate careful distance the colourful colony of puffins and also at another stage walking along the quayside at Dunmore East in Waterford, hearing the sound from high up on the cliff face of the kittiwakes. So protect the seabirds and don't disturb them. Harking back to our weather story earlier, NOAA, that's the United States government agency which studies the condition of the oceans and the atmosphere, has issued its prediction for this year's Atlantic hurricane season, which runs from June to November, and during which it's predicting a 70% likelihood of between 13 and 20 storms, of which 6 to 10 could become hurricanes, and that would include between 3 and 5 major hurricanes. The tail end of those off and gives Ireland a weather bashing. Also in regard to the climate, what's described as the largest iceberg in the world was spotted by the European Space Agency's Copernicus Sentinel-1 when it broke from the edge of Antarctica into the Weddell Sea. It measures 175 kilometres, that's 106 miles long, by 15 miles, 25 kilometres wide, and that's bigger than the Spanish island of Majorca, according to descriptions. And Jim Wilson of the campaign to gain national recognition for Edward Bransfield, a sailor from Ballinacurra in East Cork, who first set eyes on Antarctica, tells me that Bransfield has been honoured by being included as one of the icemen on the new set of Unpuss stamps. The Curragh, with its primitive design of wooden frame and waterproof skin, is regarded as the best known of all Irish traditional boats. Back in 1968, the National Museum saw a threat to the preservation of the Curragh and commissioned the building of one by Michael Keneally, a carpenter and farmer known on the Aran Islands where he built Curraghs as Mikey. A 19-and-a-half-foot, three-man Curragh with mast and sail was built for the museum, all chronicled in film and photographs. This unique chronicle is now available for the first time on the National Museum website, and Noel Campbell, curator of traditional Irish boats there, has been telling Justin Marr about it. So 
was a lot of foresight shown by the director, Dr. Lucas at the time, who contacted Fortress Cairn Braid and asked who was the most suitable person to build a traditional car with traditional methods for the, the national collection. And it was a time of change, I suppose, in a time of current numbers disappearing and more importantly, I suppose, the current builders who would have had those techniques passed down from father, from grandfather, such as uh, Michael Keneally from Inishir. So it was important at the time that the Carrick in our own collection was commissioned by the museum. And I think today we have um, 20 Carricks in our own collection. And uh, the work of Michael Keneally in 1968, it's a great measuring stick to what came before and what's come after in terms of Carrick design and Carrick build. There was very little flair, you know, that's not to take away from the skill and, and I wouldn't confuse the two, but really, as much was used as was needed, uh, it was quite practical and was for practical purposes. Now there's a bit more luxury, I think, and a bit more time can be put into the boat, possibly a bit more money as well. But essentially, you're looking at the very same design, every bit that you'd see on a boat today. You could see it in Michael Keneally's boat that he built 50 years ago, and you'd see it 50 years before that too. The design hasn't changed a lot, and I think that's the beauty of it. There's something special about it where even modern times and everything we have today the Kirk is still essentially the same boat as it was, you know, 100 years ago. And hopefully in 100 years' time, it won't have changed much either. People around the world recognise the Kirk straight away as an Irish-type boat, especially diaspora members, you know, in America. This It's a very iconic boat type. And I think communities and any boat builders that I've been talking to, you know, they really hold it in their heart. I would hope they really appreciate the effort that's gone into trying keeping this boat type out there, trying to preserve what we do have, um, in the past, the, the National Museum have commissioned our own Carrick boats from disappearing types. Um, we had a Bell Derrick type Carrick built in the early 2000s. Mel Mara came up and helped us with that. And I'd love to see that type of work. Anyone I've asked to speak to um, who use a Carrick or still fishing with Carricks, whether it was on Clear Island, Turk, they've been more than happy to invite me into their homes and tell me all about it. So there's a willingness on so many quarters for the Carrick to be promoted and preserved. And I think it's a real encouraging place where we're at at this moment. Ownership of these boats is for the entire country. We all have a stake in the future of our traditional Irish boats, be it Kirk or Galway Hooker, uh, whatever boat you're looking at or reading about. All of these boats are ours and they're Irish boats. And I'd love to see everyone take ownership and be proud of them as well and think that they have you know, a role in preserving them and uh, promoting them. I'd love to see that be taken away from it. Noel Campbell, curator of traditional Irish boats at the National Museum, describing the exhibition Making a Curragh to Justin Marr, and you can view it on the museum's website. The maritime world is an amazing place. I see that 2,000 small fish are killed every day in the northern Pacific Ocean by female elephant seals, which for 10 months of the year spend 80 to 100% of their time continuously diving in search of fish. That was discovered by Japanese and US researchers who attached infrared video cameras with depth sensors to the heads of 48 female seals. The seals appear ashore on Pacific coast beaches only twice a year to mate and give birth and later to shed their fur. During the time they're ashore they don't eat and when that's over they fish, eating constantly to regain the fat they lose on land. 
There's always something unusual to learn about the sea, isn't there? May 29 is the anniversary of the sinking in 1914 of the RMS Empress of Ireland, an ocean liner which collided with a Norwegian collier at the Storstad in thick fog near the mouth of the St. Lawrence River in Canada. After the findings in the Titanic disaster, which had happened just two years before, this ship had watertight compartments and enough lifeboats for everyone on board, but it went down in 14 minutes, and of the 1,477 people on board, 1,012 died, making it the worst maritime disaster in Canadian history. The ship had been built in Gowan, Scotland for the Canadian Pacific Steamships Company for use on the North Atlantic route between Liverpool and Quebec. And so with that thought of tragedy, we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show. The programme and podcast come from the historic coastal and maritime town of Yole on the East Cork coastline and CRY 104FM Yole. It's also broadcast in Cork on Bear Island Radio, UCC Radio and West Cork FM. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio. Radio and in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Belmullet. On Southwest Clare Radio, Radio Kirk of Washkeen. On West Limerick 102 FM and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify and the Marine Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime community. The programme website with my regular Maritime blog there is tomacsweenymarine.ie or look up Maritime Ireland Radio Show. That's tomacsweenymarine.ie or look up Maritime Ireland Radio Show. Our email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Your views on the marine sphere are very welcome. Our phone and text number is 0872-555-197. That's 0872-555-197. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Until our next programme, the usual wish of fair sailing. 